Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. August 20th was World Mosquito Day. Why do we have a World Mosquito Day, you might ask? We know that each and every species has a specific and important role to play in the ecosystem, and indeed mosquitoes have a positive role as being pollinators, and that's beneficial. However, unlike the typical pollinator you and I often might think about, like bees, birds, butterflies, mosquitoes can play a very harmful role to us. By being a vector or a carrier for diseases such as malaria, yellow fever, West Nile virus, Zika virus, and others, mosquitoes can harm other animals like humans. In fact, some would consider mosquitoes to be the world's deadliest animal. So why do we have a World Mosquito Day? Well, the history of World Mosquito Day is actually pretty interesting. World Mosquito Day was first established in 1897 when the link between mosquitoes and malaria transmission was discovered by Sir Ronald Ross. And this designated day is basically to raise awareness about the threat of malaria and other diseases transmitted by the mosquito. And I know we're in the midst of a devastating pandemic, and who knows how this is going to play out in the next few months or in 2021 and beyond, but isn't it interesting that here we are more than a century after it was discovered that there's a link between mosquito and malaria, that malaria is still a severe public health problem and the leading cause of death and disease in many developing countries. According to a World Malaria Report in 2019, malaria afflicted 228 million people and killed an estimated 400,000 people in 2018 alone, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Pregnant women and children are the most vulnerable to malaria. The disease malaria is caused by parasites that are transmitted to people through the bites of infected mosquitoes. And we're not talking about all mosquitoes, only certain species of mosquitoes of the Anopheles genus, and only females of those species can transmit malaria. Malaria was eradicated from the United States in 1951. The CDC estimates that there are about 1,500 to 2,000 cases of malaria per year in the United States. The vast majority of these cases in the United States are in travelers and immigrants returning from countries where malaria transmission occurs, mainly from sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Now let's go back a bit in time and talk about the history of the pesticide DDT, because as you might know, it was widely used decades ago in the U.S. and Europe to fight against malaria, and its use was highly controversial. DDT, or dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, was created in 1874 by a German chemist, but at the time wasn't found to be an effective insecticide. And it wasn't until 1939 when its usefulness to attack pests like mosquitoes was discovered by Swiss chemist Paul Mueller. In fact, Mueller won the 1948 Nobel Prize for his discovery of the high efficiency of DDT as a contact poison against several anthropods. And this discovery was right around the time of World War II. So although DDT, being a pesticide, was widely used in agriculture, DDT was also used extensively during World War II. Epidemic typhus has historically occurred during times of war and deprivation. Typhus was spread by the human body lice. Laos-born typhus was responsible for large epidemics in populations with overcrowded conditions and poor sanitation. Typhus killed thousands of prisoners in the Nazi Germany concentration camps. DDT was used to de-louse people who were liberated from the German death camps. The U.S. military used DDT during the war to prevent disease in our soldiers. 
The use of DDT nearly eliminated the disease typhus in many parts of Europe. And in 1955, the U.S. employed anti-malaria programs and widely used DDT in the U.S. and Europe. So DDT was initially used with great success to combat malaria, typhus, and the other insect-borne or transmitted human diseases. Now, in 1962, author Rachel Carson came out with her book, Silent Spring, which talked about the disastrous effect of DDT upon wildlife and pretty much blamed environmental destruction on pesticides such as DDT. Silent Spring, the title of the book, meaning spring would be silent because all the birds would be killed by our use of DDT, since the birds would not be singing. She also claimed that there was a link between DDT and the significantly reduced populations of the bald eagle. And the eagles that had ingested the DDT were found to lay eggs with thinning eggshells. And these unhealthy disease shells would not allow many eaglets to survive and thrive. And thus, Carson states that that accounted for the plummeting eagle population. Well, this book started freaking people out about DDT, right? DDT is destroying nature, fish, our wildlife, birds, we're going to have spring with no singing birds around, DDT's harming humans. And pretty much because of these claims in the book, the environmental movement was born and triggered the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. That was in 1970. And guess what? One of the first acts of the Environmental Protection Agency was to ban DDT. So in 1972, DDT was banned in the United States and in many other countries as well, but it's still used in some developing countries. Now, this DDT ban set in motion a major controversy. On the one hand, you got those who thought that DDT was absolutely essential because it helped fight off diseases in people, it saved many lives, and this ban would be a death sentence to millions of people. And on the other hand, you have those who thought that banning DDT was the right thing because it, it was hurting the environment and possibly toxic to people as well. And I'll tell you, 48 years later after DDT was banned, it's still a controversial topic, especially when other mosquito-borne or transmitted illnesses pop up in the United States, like West Nile virus, which spread across the United States pretty quickly after the first reported case, which was in Queens, New York in 1999. And we're still dealing with the West Nile virus. I'm here in California. I could just go to the California West Nile virus website. It's updated, I believe, every few days, and it shows West Nile virus activity in what counties in California are affected and how many cases there are. And then we had a Zika virus scare. Remember that? The first outbreak of Zika virus was in Florida in 2016. So... Although malaria is not a concern for us here in the United States, we are concerned about other mosquito-borne or transmitted diseases. One of the outspoken individuals who opposed the DDT ban was Dr. Jane Orient. Dr. Jane Orient is executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. She asserts, back in 2016, that a lifting of the ban on DDT could prevent the spread of the Zika virus, just as it could have wiped out malaria. Dr. Orient calls the DDT ban a, quote, disastrous decision, and claims DDT was the most effective public health weapon of all time. She believes you need effective mosquito control to combat these mosquito-transmitted diseases. 
Dr. Orion attributes the 1972 DDT ban to environmental hysteria triggered by events like Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. She says the author, Carson, is not a scientist and created a very scary scenario in her book. She says the book was filled with lies and presented flawed and inaccurate evidence that DDT was harmful to the environment and to humans. Dr. Orient says that the pesticide DDT has never been proven to be harmful to humans, and it does not cause Alzheimer's or cancer, as the book or many would claim it did. She also says the evidence showing DDT was thinning bald eagle's eggshells was flawed. The environmentalists and supporters of the ban would claim that DDT was killing off the peregrine falcon and caused it to be a threatened species. But Dr. Orient argued that that simply wasn't true. The peregrine falcon was threatened because people were shooting them. The book claims that because of DDT, the robin was, quote, on the verge of extinction. Well, some argue that Carson ignored the Audubon Society's annual bird count, which showed that there was no fewer birds in the years prior to her writing her book. Dr. Orient states that DDT was credited with saving 500 million or half a billion human lives, and it was the most effective weapon against malaria ever because it directly targets and kills the carrier of the disease, the mosquitoes. And in a 2016 interview, she said because of this ban, quote, African babies are dying by the millions. So it's interesting, and you can see how it makes for a really hot political public health debate. Anyway, August 20th is World Mosquito Day, which is a commemoration of Sir Ronald Ross's discovery in 1897 that mosquitoes transmit malaria. Thanks for joining us on Animals Today. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about the invasive species of the Everglades. The Everglades of Southern Florida has been extensively and rapidly transformed by non-native invasive plant and animal species. Dozens of invasive plants thrive in the Everglades, being introduced both inadvertently and deliberately, and often as byproducts of the pet trade and horticultural industries. The scores of invasive animal species include mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and birds, with the Burmese python being the most notorious example. Invasive animals are introduced as escaped or released pets, as stowaways in cargo ships, and as home aquarium releases. The current infestation of giant African snails was due to specimens intended for use in religious rituals. In addition to the Burmese python, the Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area has identified 11 other invasive species the public should be aware of, which it refers to as the Dirty Dozen. On the list are tegu lizards, the Nile monitor, the Cuban tree frog, chameleons, the giant African snail, the bullseye snakehead, that's a fish, the lionfish, and four plants, the Australian pine, the old world climbing fern, the Brazilian pepper tree, and the air potato. In the Everglades, the Burmese python has no natural predators except for crocodiles and humans, and thus is thriving. In the glades, their average size is 8 to 10 feet in length, but examples of 17 feet have been found. They mostly prey upon small mammals, including the endangered Key Largo wood rat, birds, and reptiles. They have decimated the populations of raccoons, opossums, and bobcats, and have killed off the rabbit and fox populations. As you can see, their harmful effects on the ecosystem has been huge. These semi-aquatic constrictors are also good climbers and often inhabit trees. Fortunately, they rarely attack humans. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back to Animals Today. So do cats and dogs really fight like cats and dogs? This is from The Guardian. Research explored the relationships between cats and dogs living under the same roof, and they found that while cats might feel more nervous around dogs, they appear to have little trouble in asserting themselves. This was an online survey of 748 homeowners. 80% felt their pets were comfortable with one another, while only 3% declared that their cats and dogs could not stand one another. But cats were by far more antagonistic. No surprise there. Homeowners reported that cats were three times more likely to threaten their dog housemates than vice versa, and cats were 10 times more likely to injure them in a fight. More than a fifth of dogs reportedly picked up their toys to show them to cats, compared with only 6% of cats doing the same for dogs. Researchers at the University of Lincoln launched the study to find out what made for happy cat-dog relationships. They argue an amicable coexistence is important for welfare and could reduce the risk of pets ending up in a rehoming center. Here are some more numbers. While 57% of owners said their cats hissed, spat, and swatted at dogs, and 18% said their dogs threatened cats, less than 10% of cats and only 1% of dogs ever harmed the other animal. One of the researchers believed the reason may lie in domestication. Because dogs have been domesticated for longer and are more easily trained than cats, they may be better able to control their behavior. And cats might need more reassurance that they are safe under the same roof. She says it's easier for dogs to be happier around cats than for cats to be happy around dogs. And finally, the researchers found that the best predictor for a happy cat-dog relationship was the cat's age when the cat began living with the dog, implying the younger the cat, the better the chance the dog and cat will get along. Now, all that being said, I have to tell you from personal experience that sure, there's a great chance cats and dogs can coexist happily together, but you always have to be super cautious when introducing a new dog to your resident cat or a new cat to your resident dog. There are different ways and steps you can and should take when the introduction takes place, and these steps depend on which is the incoming animal and which is the resident animal. And of course, there are many resources available online to help you through this process, but you can't just assume that an individual cat will get along with an individual dog or vice versa. Even if the dog has had experience with cats and the cat has lived with dogs before, proceed cautiously during this introduction process. By just placing a dog and cat together in the same space and hope that they're going to get along would be extremely irresponsible and could potentially result in a horrible outcome. So steps you need to take during this initial introductory period. And it might take a while and some effort on your part. So taking the proper precautions, which might include keeping your dog on a leash 
initially, making sure your cat has an escape route and a place to hide. Keep your dog and cat separated when you're not home until you're certain your cat will be safe. Again, many online sources to help you pave the way to a smooth integration of cats and dogs. So not sure if you know this, Peter, but in recent years, the raw food or raw meat-based pet diet has become a popular trend. And this trend exists in both dogs and cats. And in part, it is influenced by books such as one called the Paleo Pet Handbook. And many pet owners believe these raw meat diets are healthier for their animal. This is from Veterinary Practice News, a new study by Utrecht University scientists published in British veterinary journal Vet Record found that raw meat-based diets for pets places owners at risk of serious disease. The study, which analyzed 35 raw meat-based diets from eight brands, revealed that 86% of these sampled products carry potentially deadly pathogens, while salmonella was detected on 20%, and there was various other parasites as well. According to the scientists, pets who are fed these raw meat diets can pass on these bugs to humans through direct contact, like licking or brushing up against them. Researchers wrote that pathogens also can be transferred through direct contact with the food, through contact with a contaminated pet, such as sharing the same bed and allowing licking of the face and hands, through contact with household surfaces, or by ingesting cross-contaminated human food. These raw meat-based diets include raw, dried dog and cat treats such as pig ears, home-prepared meats based from food sold for human consumption, and commercial raw meats marketed for pets. Researchers believe there's no evidence for any benefit of raw meat-based diets compared to the mainstream dry and canned pet foods, and that raw meat-based diets may even be less nutritious. According to the Utrecht study, quote, in nutritional terms, these diets are often deficient in several nutrients and may therefore lead to serious health problems, especially in young animals that are growing. In addition, researchers found pets who are fed these raw diets are more likely to become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria than pets on conventional diets. Researchers said, quote, the presence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in raw meat-based diets could therefore pose a serious risk to both animal health and public health, not only because infections with these bacteria are difficult to treat, but also because of the potential of it contributing to a more widespread occurrence of such bacteria. It's important to encourage awareness of the possible risks associated with feeding raw meat-based diets to companion animals, and pet owners should be educated about personal hygiene and proper handling of raw meat-based diets, the study said, adding that education from veterinarians is a vital component. Sounds like a bad idea to me, Lori. Yep, does. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. 
Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or even better, a vegan diet, even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them and for the environment, too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days, and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Peter and I saw a wasp nest in the cam light on the porch just above where my dog sunbathed outside. And I looked around some more and actually they were hanging out in many of the recessed lighting fixtures we have. Well, fortunately, our friend Dr. Robert Reed is with us today. He's medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Welcome back, Robert. Hey, Lori. Nice to talk to you. Robert, how do I know if my dog has been stung by a bee or a wasp? Well, it's a really good question. It's not an uncommon problem. Uh, it might be worth taking a minute to talk about the difference between wasps and bees, ants and scorpions, yeah. if you'd like, and kind of go over the relative risk of each. Please. Um, so most of the encounters that are the, the stings that we encounter are from bees, uh, specifically honeybees. Um, honeybees and bumblebees and wasps and hornets or even ants are all part of the same group of insects that uh, they carry venom and that sting as opposed to biting. And wasps and hornets are pretty much the same thing. A hornet's just a different variety of a wasp. Um, bees are a little bit different than the type of venom that they have. Each of the different groups of animals has a little bit different venom. Um, and you know, a dog's tendency to react allergically is not necessarily the same for one as it is for the other, although dogs can have allergy to all of them, but they may not. They may only react to one of them. Wasps are less commonly seen than um, honeybees, which is mainly a function of the numbers. So just more individuals in our local environment of honeybees in most people's households and neighborhoods than wasps. But wasps and hornets can be more problematic uh, in the sense that they are more aggressive than honeybees because they're predators and they'll actually be agitated to go off, go after a dog more easily than a honeybee might. A honeybee is only likely to sting if it's been annoyed. So if a dog noses up um, to it while it's uh, feeding or steps on it or tries to bite it or eat it or happens to wander near a hive unknowingly, then they may get attacked 
uh, by honeybee. But the, the reaction that you would see in a dog is going to be pretty similar for either a bee or a wasp. It's most likely, it's going to be just a little bit of swelling and pain and redness at the site of the sting. Um, sometimes the swelling can be a little bit more regional. It can involve more of the area of the body that, um, than just the site of the sting. Uh, but those are both going to be grouped into local or focal type reactions, which are less dangerous. They should still be addressed and treated, but less dangerous than a reaction that's systemic or affecting all of the body or different parts of the body away from where the sting occurred. Um, those can be as severe as anaphylactic reactions where a dog might collapse um, within maybe 10 or 15 minutes from a drop in blood pressure. Mm. Um, they can have vomiting and diarrhea, trembling, a number of different effects from that. Other systemic type of infections that could develop over the first few hours uh, after seeing are things like hives or swelling uh, around the face. And any of those systemic reactions could be construed as an allergic reaction and uh, potentially severe, in some cases, life-threatening. When does a bee sting require emergency vet care? It's a good question, um, and one we get a lot. Uh, because of all the different types of reactions that can occur, most veterinarians would say anytime you know or suspect your dog has been stung by a, a bee or wasp, you, you have it checked out. And, you know, get it in as quickly as possible. Uh, either to your local veterinarian or to an emergency pet hospital because you just really don't know what course it's going to take. The majority of them are going to be non-life-threatening where you'll just have local swelling that needs to be treated with antihistamines, um, anti-inflammatories, maybe some steroids and pain relievers. We will occasionally use fluid treatments for um, epinephrine depending on the severity. But if it turns out to be a more severe systemic reaction, it could involve hospitalization and, and much more aggressive ther therapy because the, uh, the potential danger can be much greater for some, not many, but some individuals. If I see the stinger, should I try to pull it out? Another good question. Yeah, you know, it's only going to be uh, honeybees are the only ones that lose their stinger. Uh, and, and most of the stings we see are from honeybees. Uh, yeah, you should try to get it out, but there's, you should be careful in the way that you try to remove it. Because when a, a honeybee stinger is pulled away from its body, uh, it actually kills the bee and it pulls out usually the venom sac with it. So if you squeeze it, you might actually inject more venom into the site. Mm -hmm. You should do something like a flat card. Most people use a driver's license or a credit card or something like that to just scrape it away so that you can pull it out without having to squeeze it. Whether we see a stinger or not, we should contact our veterinarian. You should, yeah, because uh, again, you know, many times these don't develop anything, into anything serious, but sometimes they do, and there's not really a good way to know which direction it's going to take. Right. And for dogs who are, who we know are already prone to allergic reactions, they may even want you to have other treatments on hand in case something happened yeah. um, that needed more immediate attention yeah. than you could get by taking it into the vet. How about the dangers of multiple bee stings? like running into a beehive or a swarm of bees? Multiple bee stings, and particularly in a smaller dog, can have a, a much more severe effect. But most of the time, 
it's an allergic reaction that poses the greatest threat because it's uncommon for a dog to get that many bee stings. Yes, it's possible that a dog, if it uh, approached uh, inadvertently a, bee, a beehive, or particularly one that had Africanized bees in it, and a lot of bees attacked at once, or if it came near uh, a hornet's nest. Some species of hornets and wasps uh, do have social nests, and uh, they also can attack in, in groups. And, and in fact, sometimes uh, the act of stinging or um, trauma to one of the individuals can stimulate others to become more aggressive. So you can get multiple bee stings if that happens. It's a good idea to know, you know, I always tell people um, when we're trying to reduce the risks of uh, things that our dogs can encounter in the environment, it's a good idea to know what's in your environment. And this applies to, to bees and wasps, of course, but also to things like snakes and coyotes that you know can always pose a risk if we're not careful. You just really should know what's in your environment. And if there's a wasp a nest or a beehive in the vicinity of your yard, you should know about it. And um, you should either avoid it or take measures, measures to have it moved if it's a beehive or even potentially eliminated if it's a, a hornet's nest or a wasp's nest. Um, that should always be done by a pest professional because it can be dangerous otherwise. Um, not only should you know where those things are, if you have a hive or a nest in your vicinity, but you, you have to think about you know, time of day when you might encounter bees, areas in the yard where you might be more likely to have, where bees are more likely to congregate. Um, certainly the time of year can have an effect as well. Bees normally are are active in the late morning and particularly in climates where there's some seasonality they're going to be more active in the spring obviously they're going to be around flowers because they feed on pollen and nectar so they're going to congregate around their food source but sometimes in a hot climate where, where we are on a hot afternoon they're going to be looking for water these are all things that they carry back to their nests or their hives and if you're if an area of lawn for instance has just been watered and it's damp then you could find a lot of bees there and, and you should be aware of that because you know your dog could be walking around on a surface that has actually bees resting on it trying to get water you know we see a lot of bee stings in our environment in our climate in the fall or when we have warm days and cool nights so fall and spring because bees can be away from the hive and just not make it back. They're either weak, they're, you know, they're near the end of their lives or the weather gets cool and they, they don't die, but they're on the ground and they can't necessarily make it back to the hive. Um, they can still sting if the dog is nosing around on the ground and happens to pick one up in his or her mouth. That's a, a time when we often see those and knowing when bees are gonna be in the environment and where, can really help you uh, avoid those situations. I imagine stings on or in the mouth or throat could be quite dangerous due to swelling of the airways. Absolutely, yeah, even if it's not an allergic reaction, if there's significant swelling in the mouth or the throat from a sting in that area, it can compromise breathing, which can be dangerous. Do cats get stung too? They do, we don't see them very often. Um, cats would have basically the same symptoms I would think more likely a cat would have stepped on it. It might be shaking its paw or, or limping or have swelling. I think it's likely or more likely they might have eaten it. So you'd see drooling, uh, swelling around the mouth, pawing at the mouth. Um, the treatment would be very similar to what we would do with dogs. 
uh, but it's uncommon for us to see these things in cats. It can happen, but it's, it's more a dog thing than a cat thing. Any final thoughts? Well, again, I, I think that the most important thing you know, with bees particularly is to remember that, that they are, you know, an important part of our environment. And, you know, especially in California where we are, uh, people have recognized the value that they have for not just, uh, you know, environmentally, but economically. And we really want to do what we can to preserve bees in our environment without, you know, having to kill them. And we want them around for a lot of reasons. On the other hand, we don't want them endangering our pets. And therefore, it's important for us to recognize what parts of our environment may be risks to our pets and try to understand them so that we can do our part to reduce the chance that they're going to have a bad interaction. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you very much. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Okay, more with animals today right after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Hey, Anne. Thanks for tuning in to the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.